Hello, I'm Regina Botras and this is Backstage, where we talk with the who's who on stage, in dance, comedy and performing arts, speaking with the leading theatre makers of our times and how they came to the stage and what drives them and inspires them. And my guest is Anchuli Felicia King to talk to the production The Poison of Polygamy, which has opened at STC, Sydney Theatre Company. And this is a play adapted from the first novel by a Chinese-Australian author, Wang Shiping, originally published in, in 1910, I nearly said 2010, 1910. And it tells the story of Sleep Sick, an opportunistic young man from Guangdong who has his sights set on amassing his fortune in Australia's gold fields. And we're off from there. And Anchu, Felicia King is a playwright, screenwriter and multidisciplinary artist of Thai Australian descent. As a playwright, she's interested in linguistic hybrids, digital cultures and globalisations. And her plays have been produced by the Royal Court of London, that's Whitepole, which was also staged here at STC, uh, as well as Washington DC, American Shakespeare Centre, Melbourne Theatre Company, Sydney Theatre Company and on and on. Uh, she's worked as a screenwriter on H. HBO's The Baby and The Sympathizer, among others. Uh, she has won many awards, commissions and residencies and was the 2019 Patrick White Fellow for Sydney Theatre Company. Welcome, and Shirley. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. So before we get into this, what sounds like an epic play, and I'm very excited to talk about it, in fact, but before we do, and it's getting five stars reviews if I hadn't said that already, how did you come to the theatre as a, a, a playwright or as a writer? Like, what was life like for you growing up? Was it a, thea- a theatrical household, a creative household? Um, no, I mean, nobody in my family is in the creative industries. Um, and uh, But I always loved making things. I think I had a twin sister growing up and we would, you know, we would write musicals together. We would... Um, We really, we loved the theater when we were growing up, but I was never really a writer. In fact, my sister was the writer of the family. And um, I started out in theater very much as a designer. I was a composer and sound designer primarily. And it wasn't until I went uh, to study dramaturgy in New York that uh, they they forced us to take a compulsory playwriting class. And that's that's when I started (laughs) writing plays. So are you a musician as well? You say sound composer and and designer? Particularly sort of early on when I was at Melbourne Uni, um, I sound designed and composed a lot of shows. We composed musicals um, that we took to the fringe. Um, My sister would write the book and then I would write the music and lyrics. So that that was really where I got my start, like, um, you know, making sort of really massive orchestral scores or sound design for productions. And through that, I got into projection and video design. Uh, So yeah, I was very much um, like a Jill of all trades starting out in the indie theater. Wow, that that's what a start. And it sounds like it's just given you I mean, I guess I I guess so many tools. But so did you learn music growing up like, and then what took you to New York? Sure. I mean, so I am very much self-taught in pretty much everything that I've done. And uh, I just learned a lot of stuff on the job, basically. I kind of always have. Uh, but honestly, so I was working at indie theater a lot in Melbourne, um, doing shows back to back. 
and started to feel a little frustrated with the theater culture here at that time. You know, it wasn't a very diverse theater scene when I was growing up. Um, and uh, I just started to look more and more at the work that was happening in the States, particularly sort of Asian American playwrights who I admired and felt like I could get a, I could work on the kind of work politically that I wanted to work on in New York. Um, and also there was just a lot more opportunity for somebody like me over there. So I applied to just one program, the dramaturgy program at Columbia, um, because it was known for being a really multidisciplinary program um, where you got a really broad theater education. So, and I got in um, and that's, that's what took me to New York. Wow. So what came from doing that? And, and was that sort of basically the, the training that has amalgamated all of these sort of interests together? Absolutely. I mean, it's a pretty um, intense conservatory style program where, um, you know, we we studied dramaturgy in the sort of literary critical way. You know, we read lots of plays and we did literary analysis. Um, but we also, because we didn't have a design department in the school, I ended up designing a lot of my friends' shows. I ended up acting in things, you know, like we really, yeah. we churned out a lot of work. Um, and I, I think it's, it really has trained me as like a theater artist. Um, and also a lot of my closest collaborators mm. still came out of that program. Mm-hmm. So how long did you spend over there and what was that kind of Asian American playwright or, or theater scene like compared to here? You know, it's a really amazingly uh, vibrant theater scene. And a big part of that is there's so many different levels of theater going on in New York, um, all the way from like off off Broadway to Broadway. And it is a really diverse theater scene. And a lot of the playwrights who I, st- I still consider like my mentors, you know, like David Henry Huang taught me at Columbia. Um, there are playwrights there like Rajiv Joseph, um, Young Jean Lee. Uh, yeah, Asian American playwrights who I really look up to and admire um, were my teachers and my colleagues. So that uh, was a really formative time for me. And I spent pretty much four and a half years there at school and then and then working um on my student visa after that right so what was the first thing you did and when did you go okay I'm you know there's this sort of all of these skills and then the first thing you decided to write was it like a short or where like what was that moment do you remember yeah so it really was as a result of this class uh that we were forced to do as dramaturgs um which was kind (laughs) of like an empathy inducing exercise for the dramaturgy students uh they made us write plays i think out of that class i wrote like a tiny little one act that wasn't very good called orientalism obviously (laughs) um and uh but it i kind of caught the bug. I started to feel like I was reading so many plays at that time and doing so much dramaturgy that I had thought a lot about, you know, politically what I wanted to say as a playwright. And I thought a lot about structure and form. And then that summer, I wrote my first full length play, which was White Pearl, which kind of then Mm. exploded um, the following year and got programmed everywhere. So doing that, like, do you... Was there kind of a gap or something that you saw necessarily or was it just like this is 
This is my voice. This is what I see, or this is the way I see the world. I mean, I think uh, there was there was a gap that I noticed. I think it came largely from my upbringing. You know, being a third culture kid and living in a bunch of different places in a lot of international communities when I was younger. I really wanted to write about the intersection of like digital culture and globalization. I, I have mentors of mine who've written about you know, globalization really beautifully, but I felt like we were entering a new era in terms of the sort of rapid acceleration of globalization through the internet. Um, and particularly as a sort of young Asian woman looking at how that was rubbing up against contemporary identity politics and sort of nascent um, Asian diasporic communities clashing for the first time. Um, yeah, I just found all of that subject matter really interesting because it's my lived experience. And I felt like with White Pearl, I had a chance to talk about something that particularly sort of like intra-Asian racism and um, anti-Black racism in the Asian community. At, at, at the time, nobody was really talking about it. and They certainly weren't writing plays about it. Mm. Indeed. And so just explain to me when you say third culture kid, what does that mean? Third culture kid means uh, you come from two backgrounds and you're raised somewhere else. Um, so you've got, yeah, three cultures going on. <laughs> <laughs> so Australian, Thai and? For, first in the Philippines. Okay. Yeah. So coming to this latest work, the poison of polygamy when did that first kind of hit your i don't know when were you first aware of that or how did that happen so at uh i was the patrick white fellow at stc in 2019 and 2020 and uh, uh part of that fellowship is it's accompanied by a play commission so i was thinking about what i wanted to write for sydney theater company and at that same time uh, as a sort of happy accident, as is the case with a lot of my career, I read an article about the recent publication of The Poison of the Polygamy, uh, the first English translation, uh, which is a kind of remarkable story of this first Chinese serialized novella um, that was written a, in a newspaper, a Chinese language newspaper in Chinatown called the Chinese Times. And I read it, I thought it was a sort of lost classic, um, a really important piece of our history. And so I, I just went to SDC and said, hey, I, I found this thing and I'd really like to adapt it. <laughs> so did you take it in that kind of episodic kind of form when, it, when you've um, taken it to the stage or written it for the stage? Um, to an extent, I mean, I've tried to preserve the the rollicking scope of it. It's such a sort of huge, sprawling adventure because of that episodic nature of it. Uh, but I also have, you know, as you often do as a dramatist, when you're adapting something from the page to the stage, you have to conflate things yeah. and you try and give it a little more yeah. sort of like narrative cohesion in order to fit uh, in the, yeah, in a very different form. Yeah. It sounds like it's got a lot of, you know, I want to say issues, things that it's talking about. Do you want to just kind of maybe maybe set the scene? So does it start in China and come to Australia? So what's that scene? So uh, I've tried to stick pretty closely to the events of the novel, even though I think I've layered my own politics and <laughs> jokes and lots of things into my adaptation. But the story of the novel is essentially... 
a man who is, uh, you know, a lazy opium addict, a sort of ne'er-do-well, and he's much, <laughs> you know, to the chagrin of his much-aggrieved wife, decides um, that he's going to make his fortune on the gold field. So he ends up setting sail from southern China and goes to the gold fields of Victoria, where he and his fellow migrants encounter a lot of different hardships that were being experienced by goldfielders. And from there, he sort of goes back and forth between the two countries. Um, the reason it's called the poison of polygamy is that Wang Shiping mm. was writing very much in line with his politics. He was a Christian preacher. He ended up being a political organizer. And he was decrying the evils of polygamy as it was practiced in China. So the novel is also supposed to be a kind of social parable um, decrying the practice of concubinage or the taking of second and third wives in China. Um, and in the second half of the novel, um, Sleep Sick, the protagonist, meets his match with his concubine who ends up being even sort of like fouler and um, more lascivious <laughs> than he is and um, kind of becomes a the villain of the story. Um, but I have a lot of sympathy for her in my adaptation. <laughs> It sounds like it sounds like fun, a cheeky kind of, you know, attitude towards that. But does that mean that it's kind of, you know, I mean, and from reading, I get this sense, there's this sort of moral questioning and can you talk to me about some of those sure. kind of characters? I mean, the it is really framed like a parable. And in the tradition of classical Chinese literature, um, you know, every now and then Wang Shiping will step outside of the narrative to tell you the moral of, of the story he's just told you. Oh, um, yeah. So I, in my adaptation, I've sort of kept that device, but tried to problematize or add sort of doubt to the world, the moral worldview that Wang Shiping uh, has injected into his fable. Because uh -huh. yes, it sounds like it's this historical novel, obviously, there's so much of the history inside of that. Can you kind of set the scene? Like how did, this is 1910, and how much of the... I guess, original novel or that translation, I suppose. Um, how does it talk to now? I mean, you've adapted it, obviously, like you say, with your own politics and, and that sort of thing. But how does it inform our understanding of Australia or uh, uh, today? Yeah, I mean, um, Wang Shiping, because he was writing about the sort of nascent category that was Chinese Australians, I mean, it, the novel is very concerned with this key question of how do we, as citizens of these two societies, align our value systems that are seemingly incompatible. And he very much falls on the side of sort of Christian Western monogamy and lots of sort of Western progressivist ideals from the time is the way that we're going to drag China out of antiquity um, and out of our sort of backwardsness. So it's, all, it's almost uh, a little self-reflexively racist um, as a novel. Uh, but it's mm -hmm. it's really, it's fascinating because it captures this period of immense change and the sort of first mass contact between Chinese and European settlers and the complicity of Chinese settlers in colonization of this country. Mm. Um, so I have then sort of spun out uh, from that key question of how do we how do we live as citizens of these two societies to speak to the historical context a little more deeply and um, the sort of uh, one of my key concerns in my adaptation is the legacy of mining uh, on this continent and the 
long-lasting environmental mm. effects um, of that period. And the I, I talk in great detail about sort of where Chinese migrants fell in the racial pecking order uh, at that time and how they were both um, oppressed and the victims of systemic racism, but also ended up perpetrating racism and being complicit in colonization. There's a lot in there to talk about. We, we, there's a lot of that kind of to, to fill into a, a play and it's quite a long play but and epically traverses I guess time but historically for you when you were kind of looking at this research I have two questions actually wonder why it was published like that way in the newspaper like what it was actually saying of the time but then what was happening at that time like you say about the progression you know progression of China and the I guess it talks about Chinese diaspora and and how and nationalism and and colonization like these big words but what does what does I guess maybe just maybe let's start with the question when it was written why do you think it was published like that like in this episodic in a newspaper who was it talking to so the Chinese Times was published for Chinese language readers in Australia so it really was for um, this nascent diasporic community, the, the first Chinese settlers in Australia. Um, and Wang Shiping, you know, it's it's part of a literary tradition um, of classical Chinese novels to be Ooh. written this way. Um, but equally, okay. you know, it was in a sort of Dickensian way, it was a serialized novella designed almost like a soap opera to keep you coming back for weekly installments. Oh. Um, and it was published over the course of the year. So it was their, you know, binge-worthy Netflix series of the day, if you like. <laughs> for, for peak, and speaking directly to this very new experience, um, which was only a generation old of these Chinese migrants um, newly settling here. Um, and it's uh, it's... Uh, it's propaganda, I would say, you know, it's mm. very much Wang Shiping trying to speak to his fellow countrymen and trying to convert them to saying, you know, you should give up these old practices of the old country, like keeping women backwards in foot binding and the fact that women couldn't read or write, you know, the fact that we still take multiple wives, the fact that we, I mean, there's so much sort of, um, proselytizing happening in the novel mm. so that was very much his readership yeah it sounds like it so and what fun so are you when you said when you said like you're bringing your own politics or your own view to it are you kind of filling in between the lines in a in a way yeah i think very much so i was really interested in giving the audience the historical context that the book doesn't have because it's written in his own period for his own audience. But I wanted the audience yeah. to understand um, just how um, much uh, political organizing the Chinese migrants were doing at that time, how much violence they experienced from the European miners, how uh, unfairly taxed they were, you know, all of this sort of, um, ancillary context that was the world that they were living in that the audience might not necessarily know i've tried with my research to to fill in some of those gaps mm. so talk to me a little bit about how it's come to the stage from your script it just sounds visually stunning can you kind of give me that scene and, and you as a designer I, I don't know that necessarily you thought about this in your writing but 
How does it look? So it's a really epic production. It's in the round. Um, It's performed by this virtuosic ensemble of eight actors who are all, you know, playing multiple roles. And it's a very physical, almost like dance-like um staging Courtney Stewart our director has done just such a beautiful job of staging this work it really does feel like sort of epic almost Brechtian theater um Hmm. in the way that she's staged it and all of our designers have done such beautiful work um particularly you know James Liu's beautiful set design is these moving red columns that sort of morph and take on different meanings and structures and Matt Shu's done this sort of wall-to-wall epic composition almost the entire show is scored and he's taken a lot from like Chinese opera uh, traditional Chinese instruments Mm. yeah so it's a really cohesive beautiful production and does it sort of travel in time like is it like even contemporary or is it sort of a can be any time it's not it's very much rooted in the period um and we've tried to suggest the period without resorting to sort of historical cliches or chinoiserie you know Mm. we we've tried to um we talked a lot about a sort of frugality to the way that we um depicted the late Qing dynasty you know we wanted objects that like transform in meaning um so it's very much playing with the history um without being sort of like rigidly historical mm-hmm. it sounds just gorgeous and as i said it's getting five star reviews i love how uh, in, in the notes you, i think you describe yourself as a promic- promiscuous adapter is that kind of a comment on polygamy <laughs> as well as your take like what do you think is that well i guess what's the thing that drew you to this to you initially right from the beginning in this story i mean i think it's really interesting in terms of polygamy and certainly it's like a the my dumb joke uh is very much about sort of this key question of the play being polygamy that i think as a society we're now having the inverted conversation about monogamy versus polygamy which i find really interesting um and i think that's what drew me to the book i thought there's so much in here that actually speaks to how we live now Um, And we're still grappling with these questions, you know, 300 years later about what it means to exist as citizens of two societies and how we align our values. But also, you know, having said it was 300 years ago, this is our grandparents and great grandparents generation. Like it wasn't that long ago. And, uh, you know, Wang Xiping's grandsons were at our opening night. I mean, it's it's in the immediate family histories for a lot of us so it's also very much a play about our ancestors and what we would like our predecessors you know 300 years from now what we would like them to say about us um and how we occupied our time on this continent Mm -hmm. it sounds like i mean and, and and is this what you mean there's this inverted conversation of polygamy now does that i'm not sure what that means is and 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 then are you saying that we're kind of like in this poly- polygamous sort of society where we can take a little bit of Buddhism or a little bit of Christianity or a little bit of knowledge, or you know all of these or or culturally as well like what is does it traverse that? Uh, when I was when I said inverted polygamy, I was talking about literal polygamy. Like um, at the at the time of the novel, you know, it was it was a 
Um, he was very much saying, like, stop taking multiple lovers and start just marrying the one person and commit to them. And I think as a society, we're now having uh, the inverted discussion. So I think if Wang Shibing was around, um, which I've sort of, the narrator character in my play, The Preacher, tries to talk directly to the contemporaries and go, no, you must stop this social evil, like, befouling your veins anew. Uh so I find that really interesting too that these things come in historical cycles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But do you think that we're also in this kind of uh polygamous sort of cultural gender pol- politics polygamy? Yeah. I think you know one of one of the dialectics that's a wanky way of saying it. One of the um <laughs> one of the themes of the play is very much about um monoculture versus a sort of polyculture and and uh you know Wang Shiping was asserting this worldview that was very um you worship one god you marry one partner you have one set of cultural values um and that meant that he he had a sort of inflexible moral worldview and I think we have a far more flexible moral worldview and that's very much the the question that I'm trying to pose with my adaptation is um, about coexisting, actually, um, and how we can be, uh, how we can take in all these different new cultural inputs that we have as a society and find a way to exist harmoniously without exploitation. Yeah. Multifaceted we are, and the play is indeed. <laughs> and Julie Felicia King, thank you so much for joining. It just looks incredible. No worries. Thank you very much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Well, that was Anchili Felicia King there talking about the poison of polygamy on at Sydney Theatre Company at the moment and running until the 8th of July. That's in the Wharf One Theatre at STC. 